0: We have an anchor that keeps the soul. The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. There are two sides to the church. There is the divine side, the perfect side, and there is the human side, the imperfect side. Those of us who are a part of the body of Christ, we are that imperfect side of the church. And so we understand that we are, that we are not perfect, that we are not, that we are not flawless, but as, as, well as the Bible says, we strive to the best of our ability to walk in the light. We try to walk in harmony with the Word of God. We have talked about the church of Christ is right in origination. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who built the church. He is the one who bought the church. It belongs to Him. We have said that the church of Christ is right in her authorization. We look to the Bible. We appeal to Scripture for whatever we do. And then we've talked about the church of Christ is right in salvation. And the Bible tells us that salvation is in Christ. It is not only in Christ, but it is in the church of Christ. That is the divine body that belongs to the Lord we spent our time talking about the church of Christ is right in identification. Collectively, there are a number of terms that are used to describe the body of Christ. Individually, there are terms that are used to to define those of us who again belong to the body of Christ. I want to begin by talking about the church of Christ is right in expectation. There is an expectation level placed upon those of us who obey the gospel. As we noted today, when we become a child of God, we are delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. There is the new birth, and Jesus talked about the new birth in John chapter 3 and verses 3 and 5. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In John 3, verse 7, Jesus said, Marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again. The new birth provides us with a new beginning. That new beginning is marked by a putting away of our old past, and then we seek to the best of our ability to live a new life in Christ Jesus. Paul, in writing to the saints in Rome, asked the question, What fruit have you in those things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death, but now you have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. We have to understand that as God's people, God desires the church to be fruitful. That is, we are to bear fruit unto God. We are to live in such a way so that our lives bring honor and glory to God the Father. Let me call attention to a passage in the book of Ephesians. Look with me, if you would, at Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 21 in Ephesians 3 verse 21 we're talking about being fruitful in the church paul said to him be glory in the church by jesus christ throughout all ages world without end god's design is that he be glorified through or by the church that bears his name now jesus would say and they're in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In John chapter 15 at verse 8, Jesus said, Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. So there is this expectation level. God expects us to be fruitful in His kingdom, doesn't He? But when we talk about the work of the church of Christ, God has saved us so that we might serve Him. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 10, Paul said that we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are God's masterpiece. We are His workmanship. We have been created anew in Christ Jesus. I said a moment ago that the new birth affords us a new beginning. That new beginning is marked by new blessings. And so as a child of God, we have been saved, yes, but we have been saved to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. When we serve Him, we ultimately bring honor and glory to Him. And the idea is that when people see the work of the church, when the world sees the church in all of her glory, that ultimately it brings honor and glory to God the Father. Now that's the goal. The Lord said, "'Go therefore make disciples of all the nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are to be evangelistic in our endeavors for the cause of Christ. Now you go back and you look at the first century church. And of course our goal is to be like the first century church. We want to go back and be the apostolic church, don't we? The apostolic church was evangelistic in her endeavors. A good example of this would be in Acts chapter 8. A great persecution swept the early church. The Bible says the disciples in the city of Jerusalem were all scattered abroad with the exception of the apostles. Verse 4 tells us in Acts chapter 8, those who were scattered abroad went everywhere. Listen to what he said. Listen to what Luke said. They went everywhere preaching the word. They were evangelistic. Why? Because they realized that people were lost and dying in sin and unrighteousness. We will never capture the spirit of evangelism as they did in the first century until we understand that people are lost and dying in sin. They are separated from Almighty God. Now we talk about the power of sin. Sin has the ability to put a person in bondage. It incarcerates people. And so the goal is to liberate them. How are they liberated? By the truth of the gospel. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. So there is the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And here's the real danger. When people step out into eternity unprepared to meet God. As Paul said in the long ago, the wages of sin is death. They are unprepared. The penalty described by Paul is eternal separation from Almighty God. And so because of our love for God, our love for the lost, we reach out and try to the best of our ability to share with them the gospel of Jesus. So first and foremost, the work of the church, we are to be involved in evangelism. Then there's a second work of the church. It is called edification. Jesus said in the second part of the Great Commission, teaching them, that is those who have become His disciples, a disciple is a learner, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So we have the responsibility of grounding people in the truth of God. Now, there are a lot of folks in our world today that do not understand what the New Testament teaches about the church of Christ. Sadly, there are some in the church that have taken shots at the church, and they do not understand the nature of the body of Christ. If they did, they would never take shots. They don't understand what the church is all about. They don't understand the distinctiveness of the body of Christ. So they've got to be grounded in the fundamentals of the faith, don't they? They've got to understand, as we're talking about in this series of lessons, about the one who planned for the church to come into existence. They've got to understand something about the great prophecies of old with regard to the church. They've got to see that the Bible talks about those who preached about the church, the kingdom of God. Philip is a great example of that. When Philip went down to the city of Samaria, he preached things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we preach Christ and the church is because the two go hand in hand, don't they? So edification, the church has to be built up. It has to be grounded in the truth. And then there is a third work of the church, benevolence. Now really, evangelism is the first and foremost sphere of work. Edification and benevolence actually accommodate evangelism in the sense that we engage in edification and benevolence so that we might lead others to Christ, don't we? Paul said in Galatians 6, 2, he would say, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In verse 10, he said, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. So there is this divine obligation resting upon us. There is an expectation level. When we become children of God, when we sign on to become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord expects His church to be fruitful. But then there's a second thing. The church is to be fruitful, but the church is also to be faithful. When you have the opportunity, read Revelation chapters 2 and 3 this week. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus Christ places the seven churches of Asia under a microscope. He evaluates each and every congregation. There are some congregations that He commends for their good works. There are some congregations that He notes their flaws. They had some problems, and those problems needed to be corrected. And so when he looked at those congregations, he identified their weaknesses and their strengths. He identified the things that they were doing right. He identified the things that that they were not doing right. Five of those congregations were in danger of having their candlestick put out. So God expects the church, that is the corporate body of Christ, individual members of the body of Christ to be faithful. So what about faithfulness to the Lord? First and foremost, we've got to be strong in the Lord because we've got to understand the devil is doing everything within his power to circumvent our faith in the Lord, isn't he? Didn't Peter say, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter said, whom we stand steadfast in the faith. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you might be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes of the devil. To understand that the devil is going to come at us from all directions. He's going to come at us on a daily basis. He will never leave us alone. And yet James said that if we resist the devil, what will he do? He'll flee from us. James chapter 4, verse 7. So we got to be strong in the Lord. And then secondly we've got to be steadfast in the Lord, don't we? Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Paul said, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not vain in the Lord. One of the reasons we need to be busy and involved in the kingdom of God is because the busier we are, the less time we have to get preoccupied with the world, don't we? And you think about some of the problems that we face in the body of Christ with regard to being, being involved in the work of the church, with regard to being steadfast in the Lord. One problem is unfortunately preoccupation. We're so preoccupied with life and the things that are going on about us, we forget about being fruitful to the Lord. And sometimes that has something to say about our faithfulness to the Lord. And then there is procrastination. We intend to get involved in the work of the church. We intend to do better, but we just never get around to it. So we're going to be steadfast. There has to be a sense of resolve in our minds. that We're going to do everything that we can to stay faithful to Almighty God. Now in James chapter 1, James talks about the various trials and temptations that come our way on a daily basis. And James would write and he would say, blessed is the man that endures temptation." For when he has been tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So faithfulness to God has its rewards, doesn't it? Do you remember the words of the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 6? He said, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. As we labor in the Lord, we do so in anticipation of hearing him say one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, there's a second thing I want to talk about tonight in our study. The church of Christ is right in organization. When we look at the religious world around us, obviously there are a lot of differences, aren't there? Some of the differences that that are in the religious world, some are not so prevalent, some are. When we look at the organizational structure of the Lord's church, does God give us a pattern for the organization of the church that we read about in Scripture? He does, doesn't He? Now, you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, but if I tarry long, he said, but if I tarry long, I write these things so that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So we have God's Word that is a pattern. And Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in about verse 13, hold fast the form of the pattern of sound words, which you've heard of me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. So what about the organizational structure of the church? Well, first of all, think about the church universally. We're talking now about the church in her aggregate sense. The church universally is comprised of how many bodies? One body, right? Didn't Paul say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling? So when we talk about the church, there is one body universally speaking. There is also one head, spoken of in Scripture. The passage that Jordan read a moment ago, he is the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. I said last week in our study the word beginning there means active source, active cause, the source from which something begins. What Paul is saying is the church is not the product of man, but rather it is the product of Almighty God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who built it. He bought it. It belongs to Him, as I have said repeatedly. So with regard to the church universally, there is one body and there is one head. Now when you look around the religious landscape today, it is evident that there are some who would say that there is one body, But they also espouse the idea that there are two heads, not one head, but two heads. They say we have a head in heaven, but there is a head on earth. The head of the church on earth has certain powers, doesn't he? They're saying that he has the right to enforce legislation with regard to the body of Christ. So I want to ask you today, is that true or false? Is it biblical or is it unbiblical? Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. Paul said, speaking of Jesus, that He is the blessed and only, and I would stress that word only. He is the blessed and only potentate. The word potentate means sovereign. The Lord Jesus is the sovereign one who rules over the church. He is, as Paul said, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So when we talk about the church universally, the Bible says there is one head, not two heads, but one head. Now there are some who claim that there are two heads, but the Bible only says there's one. So if the Bible says there's one, but man says there's two, who are we going to believe? What are we going to follow? What will we, what will we bow to? Will we bow to what mankind teaches? us? Will we bow to what, other religions have to say? Or shall we bow in submission to the authoritative words of Jesus Christ? Now, what was it Jesus said? All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And what was it God the Father said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. God wants us to hear whom? His Son. All right? When we talk about the church and the legislation that governs the church, the church, is that legislation, is it subject to alteration? It is not. Well, how do I know that? Because the Lord Jesus gave us His last will and testament. It's called the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. It is identified as the perfect law of liberty in James chapter 1, verse 25. It is the law of liberty that James speaks of in James chapter 2, verse 12. The law of Christ is what governs the church. Paul said that he had written these things so that they, that is, members of the body of Christ, might know how to behave themselves in the church of God. Bear in mind, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, that the things that he wrote were the commandments of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ exercises control or sovereignty over the church today by what means? By His inspired Word. I don't have to have anybody to interpret Scripture for me I don't have to have anybody to hand down divine legislation for how the church ought to operate because God did that 2,000 years ago. God's Word is unchanging, is it not? Didn't the psalmist say, forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven? Didn't Jesus say, all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth? We talk about the importance of a will. I talked to somebody just the other day about a will. And they were telling me that they were in the process of rewriting their will. A will takes effect after the death, according to the Hebrew writer, of the testator, the one who made it out. Jesus is the testator of the new will, the new covenant, Hebrews 9:15 through 17. That will was probated when Jesus died on Calvary. Fifty days later on the day of Pentecost, the church began, that will was executed. It is a valid will, it's in operation today. We don't have the right to circumvent it. We don't have the right to alter it. It is what it is, and it will stand until the end of time, and it is the will that will one day judge us. James said, so speak and so do as those that will be judged by the law of liberty. So with regard to the church, first to understand the church universally. One head and one body. Now the Bible tells us plainly that the one Head is Jesus Christ. I read just a moment ago, Colossians 1.18. He's the head of the body of the church. In Ephesians 1.22 and 23, Paul said He put all things in subjection under His feet, made Him to be head over all things to the church. Listen to Him. Which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ. The church has one head. There's one body, there is one head. Anybody ought to be able to see that. Now again, we're talking about the Bible. So when we talk about the church of Christ, What's right with the church of Christ? Well, from an organizational standpoint, when we talk about adhering to what the Bible says, we're in line with what the Scripture says, aren't we? Can you tell the difference between a crooked line and a straight line? If I were to draw a straight line before you tonight, you'd understand the difference in a straight line and a crooked line, couldn't you? So when we take the Word of God and place it beside what people are saying in the religious world, the doctrines and commandments of men, if what is said doesn't, If it doesn't harmonize with what this book says, it's a crooked line, isn't it? This is a straight line. It's always right. It'll always be right. The Bible is always right. Look, I might be wrong. You might be wrong. The world might be wrong. But the Bible is always right. So we need to remember that. The church of of Christ, organizationally speaking, universally speaking, one head, one body. Now, there's a second thing. When we read in the scriptures, we can read about the church of Christ regionally. In Galatians chapters 1 and, in, well, in, actually in Galatians chapter 1, in verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. That was a geographical location wherein a number of congregations existed. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we read about the churches of Asia Minor. Again, regionally speaking, We're talking about a number of autonomous congregations of God's people. We might say the churches of DeSoto County. We might say the churches of Christ in the state of Mississippi. So you get the idea. But again, there's just one church and just one body. Now, locally speaking, you can read of individual congregations. The church at Philippi, for example. Look at Philippians chapter 1 in verse 1. I want you to see something. Paul and Timothy servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who were in Philippi. Every person, as I said this moment, as I said this morning, every person who has obeyed the gospel is identified in Scripture as a saint. We have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart from the world, placed in the body of Christ. We are set apart for him unto Him so that we might serve him, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. The bishops under consideration here are the overseers of a local congregation. Now again, we're talking about what's right with the church of Christ by way of organization in a local setting. You have individuals who meet the criteria set forth by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7, Titus chapter 1 verse 5 and following. They are identified as elders, bishops, pastors. In the religious world, what you often see is a pastoral system. And by that, I mean the preacher is typically identified as the pastor. He is the overseer of the church. But I want you to see something. Biblically speaking, there is no one-man pastoral system in the Lord's church. It does not exist. Well, how do I know that? Look at Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Acts 14, 23. The Bible says they ordained, listen to him, elders, plural, in every church. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said he left Titus on the island of Crete. Crete was an island on the Mediterranean. He left him on that island for the purpose of setting in order things that were lacking and ordaining or appointing elders in every city or in every church. Now you need to hear this and you need to understand it. An elder has no authority on his own. There is no one-man pastoral system. Elders rule, plurally speaking. It is the eldership that has authority. Their authority extends in matters of expedience. They have no authority when it comes to doctrine. They don't have any liberty to change the law of Christ, to circumvent the law of Christ, to rewrite the law of Christ. And I want to talk about this a little bit more later. But to listen to some elders today, I would be left with the impression that they have have the authority to rewrite Scripture, to introduce things that are not found in what I call the New Testament. I read just the other day about a congregation of some 2,000 people in a city other than where we're living. The elders said they began re-examining the issue regarding the woman's role in the church. Their conclusion was two-thirds of the eldership, they concluded that the women had a right to be involved in a more expanded role in the church. However, they said they could not function as preachers or elders. Well, my question is, why not? If they can wait on the Lord's table, if they can lead prayer, if they can read scripture, they can certainly preach. Now look, elders may take it upon themselves to introduce new legislation into the church but in so doing they are not following the pattern set forth in scripture they are violating what the new testament teaches they are going beyond what the bible says and let me tell you right now they're going to give an account to god for that it's not their church it's not my church it's not any, it's the Lord's church. If I were to go into your home and begin telling you that you need to move this piece of furniture over here, paint this wall over here, knock this wall down over here, and you know what? I think we'll make a driveway here. What would you say? Not here. You're not here. Well, why? Because it's not your house. Well, correct. So what gives people the right to think that they can come into God's house, the church of the living God, and change and alter and circumvent what He has said? They don't have that right. When they take it upon themselves to execute matters, related to doctrine. They have violated the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're talking about what's right with the church of Christ. When you line up a congregation that deviates from the pattern, you have to ask yourself, is this, quote unquote, the church of Christ, the church that belongs to Christ? Or is it a congregation that has now deviated from the Lord's church and no longer represents the body of Christ? And by the way, to some of these guys out here that are rewriting and changing the church, my, my plea to you, please take the sign down. Take the sign down. If you want to do something other than what the Bible teaches, how about calling, your, how about calling yourself something other than what the Bible says? Because you're not the church of Christ. You're not the Lord's church. The Lord's church does things the Lord's way, if that makes sense. So, from a local vantage point, we have men who function as elders, and then we have men who meet the criteria and set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 8 through 13, they serve as deacons. They are special servants. They are involved in areas pertaining to spiritual matters and physical matters. The work of elders is spiritual in nature. They have the responsibility of feeding the church, leading the church, guiding the church, protecting the church, They have the responsibility of overseeing the body of Christ. I said the other day in a class, I'll say it again. If I were an elder in the Lord's church, the passage that would keep me up at night is Hebrews 13, 17. They're going to give an account of the souls that they oversee. Let me tell you what, it's serious business, serious business. So you've got elders, deacons, and then you've got saints, as Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. We're all saints. We're all members of the body of Christ. Now Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, There are many members but one body. So if we are the body of Christ, we're members of the body of Christ, what we want to do is live in submission to His will. Now you think about the organizational structure of the church today. Now I want you to look at the world, look at the religious world at large. Most denominations have a one-man pastoral system. Most denominations do not fit the criterion set forth in Scripture for the organizational structure of the church. And look, It pains me to say that, but it's true. So when we talk about what's right with the church of Christ, organizationally speaking, we're striving to the best of our ability to fit the apostolic model, aren't we? If you look at the early church and listen to the warning sounded by the Apostle Paul, the church went into apostasy beginning with the organization of the church. You had men who were elders. And then those men began to break off and... One man would serve as a bishop over a number of congregations. Let me tell you what, that's not biblical. can't find it in Scripture. If we can't find it in Scripture, we need to leave it alone. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul.